Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. If you've been here any of the last seven weeks, this is the seventh week. We've been focusing on the book of First John. Everybody say First John. It was weak, but it's okay. Um, we've been focusing on this book, and really, if you know, I, I've said it every week, and I just am briefly going to summarize why I think First John is extremely important. Is it's one of the last books in the New Testament written, not just written in chronological or, order, but time period order is where it gets interesting. Many historians believe that it's written 30 years after the Apostle Paul's death. John is the last living, breathing disciple and apostle on the face of the earth. He has walked physically with Jesus. He has seen Jesus physically die. He has pioneered church growth and the movement that has exploded all over the globe. He has suffered and watched his friends die. I am telling you this, from a concept of Christianity as people who just are exploring it, this guy has literally seen it all. So when he writes this book, what he's doing is he's nearing the end of his life in which he has been through absolutely everything. And he's assessing the culture of believers and followers of Jesus. And he's bringing course correction. Now his course correction isn't like Paul in some letters in which it's very pointed and very to the point. His course correction comes from the place of literally being the closest person on the face of the planet to Jesus. Not just in proximity, but many believe that him, he was actually Jesus' cousin. John has unparalleled accuracy to the mission and methodology of Jesus that he brings into alignment in this letter as well as in his gospel. That's why many love the gospel of John because it's not like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It adds stories and context to things that many of the other gospels don't. Something about John's writings is different. Or should I say is deeper. Born from proximation and born from the power of that proximation, he writes. So with that today, I'm going to be talking about specifically 1 John. We're going to be spending our, our, our morning in 1 John 5, 1 through verse 12. So if you want to spend a ton of time later on, we don't have anything online besides podcasts. If you want to go through and listen to the first five chapters, you can. It'll only take you seven or eight hours because we've been in it that long. <laughs> But I want to encourage you today, what I'm challenging you on is this, and I've kind of written this title out based on 1 John 5, 1 through verse 12, the burden of overcoming life-changed proof. The burden of overcoming life-changed proof. Now, many of us have heard the burden of proof. Right? We've heard that statement before. Actually, Noah, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but Noah, he's in the back, told him he was singing over here, told me about the show Jury Duty was hilarious. If you, you can watch that. I do like shows. I don't condone everything, but there is some good humor in there. Um, but the burden of 
proof, right? When we think about court cases, when we think about uh, the justice system, is meeting a place in which the proof proves a viewpoint, whether the prosecution or the defense. Now, for me, um, the burden of proof, the only time I've ever had to come in contact with this was when I was pulled over a few years ago. Nobody in here has been pulled over, right? (laughs) Amen. Anybody pulled over this week? (laughs) Were you really? (laughs) Did you get off? Uh, (laughs) He's like, man, you're preaching right to me. (laughs) My gosh, he's just, he's read it all. But the the burden of life, here's what I'm saying today is I remember I I had a buddy who had just moved into our small town. We, me and my wife, um, we, we met in Michigan. I lived in Michigan and then ultimately moved here two years ago. But while, while we were there, there was a guy who had moved there and I was giving him a tour of the city. And as I, as I was giving him a tour, I remember it was funny because most of the times, how many of us have been pulled over and we know exactly why we're pulled over the moment we're pulled over, right? How many of us have been pulled over and you're like, I have no idea why I'm pulled over. This was, this was my instance. I'd never experienced this before. I literally am driving. I see the cop pull behind me and I'm like, well, I'm in the speed limit. I know exactly where I am in the city. I'm like, I, and I have my seatbelt on. There's no reason I'm going to get pulled over. Bam, pulled over. And I'll never forget this. He pulls me over, comes up to my window and he goes, hey, do you know why you're pulled over today? And I looked at him and I said, honestly, officer, I have no idea. Because I know what the speed limit was. I'm wearing my seatbelt. And he looked at me and he goes, "Uh, improper lane usage. And I like looked at him and I like looked at my friend next to me. And I'm like, is this a, am I like reality TV right now? Like, and he said, yeah, you were, you were kind of swerving between the lanes. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when you go down a lane, you can't touch the paint on either side of that lane more than a few times or else it's improper how you're using the lane. And I looked at him and I was like, man, in my mind, I'm like, man, you must have been bored. (laughs) I'm like, dude. And I'm like thinking, I'm like sitting there thinking, I'm like, there, I am absolutely going to court. Now, I will say, police officers, you guys got a tough job out there. I do support you. Just please don't pull me over. I'll support you more. I But I'll never forget this. I'm I'm like, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, what did I do for improper lane usage? And the best part is, so when he leaves, he gives me a ticket. He leaves, and I remember Googling it, and it says improper lane usage is typically what they will pull over a suspected uh, drunk driver or somebody who's driving while high as a, as a sobriety test, as a baseline to kind of get a sobriety test. And I was like, I know I wasn't drunk. I know I was not. So I'm like, we definitely going to court. So what do I do? I petition the ticket. And the best part is I'm like so deep into this. This is where it gets funny. I'm so deep into this that I realized the particular stretch that he pulled me over. The reason he pulled me over is because Michigan has potholes the size of the Grand Canyon. And so what happens is, is in Michigan, would you rather hit a 14 foot deep pothole with your car? Right? Or would you swerve around it a little if nobody's around you? Well, this particular stretch of road was notorious for potholes. So you better believe Micah went back there with a camera. Pothole. Well, I'm in the road. Pothole. 
picture, pothole. I'm like, and, and the best part is I show up and I'm like in there, I'm like, I got 17 pictures of potholes I was swerving around. And it's funny because what happens, we get called before the magistrate, the officer's there, and the best part is he, burden of proof, puts my car on the screen and we watch me just... <laughs> And I'm like, that's pothole one, that's pothole two, that's pothole three. I'm like, that's pothole four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, and it's funny because we get done, and the guy's like, by the letter of the law, you improperly use the lane. And I said, I, I like look at him, and I'm like, yeah, but by the letter of the law, my taxes should be paying for some paved roads. <laughs> So, and he looks at me and he goes, but I understand why you were doing that. I understand that you did not want to hit all of these potholes. And in Michigan, if you've been to the Midwest or any place with terrible weather, you know what potholes can do. And he said, so what we're going to do is we're just, we're going to drop the ticket and we're going to make you pay 50% of the fine because it was half your fault. So what happened is, is we both met the expectation of the burden of proof. No points, no record on my license. I'm squeaky, squeegee clean. But the burden of proof, right? And what I want to say about this today is understanding, because I think for a lot of us, right, the reason Christianity has lost its power in the world today is because do we have proof of a life that is overcome? Do we have proof of a life that has been changed? Because as sad as it is today, it is easy to profess faith, to believe faith, but not overcome anything that shows faith or produce proof of anything that shows the God that we serve. And I'm not saying that all of us need to have this idea of which we, we show the work. But I do believe that people should look at our lives like the disciples and like Jesus and say, wasn't he Mary and Joseph's son, the son of the carpenter, in which he couldn't heal in his home city because people had such a reality of who he was, even though everybody else could see that he was something much more than that. We should have the story of being the fisherman at once that fished for fish that now fish for men. The story of the Sauls and the Pauls, the story of the tax collectors, the stories that we see in Scripture. What would it look like to be the ones who could tell the stories of overcoming? That's why I love they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and what the word of a testimony. What is your testimony of overcoming? What is your testimony of life change? See, because that is the thing that validates belief in Christ is when other people can see that you had encountered his love and you couldn't help but change. So today what I want to do is we're going to spend, we're going to spend the remainder of our time, like I said, in 1 John chapter 5, 1 through verse 12. And I'm going to stop a few times and break it down and then we'll have a few points at the end and bada bing, bada boom. 1 John 5, 1 through verse 12, it says this, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. What you have to understand right now in the beginning of this chapter is this is actually a debate that's going on within the Jewish culture of that day. 
The ones who believe in the circumcision and the written and oral law of the tradition of the elders are looking and saying, we don't necessarily um, embrace Jesus, but we still love the God of Moses and Abraham, Yahweh. We still profess and believe in the institutional makeup of following God, but we do not embrace the fact that Jesus was sent of him. And what you're going to find throughout this passage of Scripture is that this is actually something that is extremely prevalent. The Jews trying to drive a wedge in the practicers of the way in a way that brings them back to an orthodox, traditional Jewish customary lifestyle. So what is he saying? He's saying, hey, you can't say you follow God if you don't believe in Jesus. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. He does give them credit though. Let's observe the commandments and let's believe in Jesus through observing these commandments. And if you want, there's some more instruction on this in last week's sermon. But let's keep reading verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And listen to this statement. For some of us in this room who've never had this, this revelation, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, many of us, if I were to sit here and say, you know, God is not, his commands are burdensome, right? Some of us in our hearts are getting a little pricked where we're like, I'm not going to lie, it sometimes feels like a burden. And what's interesting is, is how we observe that through kind of this this age of Christianity, I should say. But what's more fascinating is when John says this, and he's writing this to Jewish converts, and believe it or not, who literally their life has been made up of rules. And I went over this in weeks past, the Ten Commandments that then produced the 613 um, traditions, that then produced the thousands and thousands of different major and minor laws. It's interesting when he writes this out, he's like, hey, don't worry, the commands are burdensome. People are like, bro, I've been burdened my whole life with these mugs. Because their entire culture had been made up of rules. Literally, you can break down their there's specific rules, dozens of them that talk about the saddling of a donkey. I mean, that sounds burdensome. See, what John is doing is he's, he's bringing alignment to this reality that, yes, commands are good and they're not burdensome. But we have to find this, this middle ground. Let's keep going. It says this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Can that be said of you? That you were born of God and from that place you were an overcomer. Not that you were an overcomer in the DNA of what that word means, but you were an overcomer in a situation that you were once in that you rose above. Let's keep reading. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. I'm going to break this down really deep later. 
If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And the one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. This language, once again, I'm, re- I'm rephrasing because, once again, people are making a choice in the Trinity. Focusing in Jewish culture on the God that has always existed, the Yahweh, the written and oral law, tradition of the elders, commands. And what they're doing is they're stripping away the spirit in the son. And John is saying, no, you cannot take these things away. The God Godhead testifies about the Son, and the Son died to give birth to a reign in which the Holy Spirit is present. He's like driving this point home. And it says this. Verse 11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, so he's talking about this son so much, right? And once again, driving home the point that you can't just pick God and have nothing to do about the son that he gave and sacrificed for him. But then remember what it broke down. It broke down the water, the blood, and the spirit. The water, the blood, and the spirit that testifies not just of a God who loved his people and reigned from the beginning, created all, but rather one that could not bear distance anymore, offered his son up as sacrifice for the sin to invite all people, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, all cultures and peoples into relationship. But here's where it gets interesting, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down a rabbit trail because I just feel like I, I want to. <laughs> and the rabbit trail is this, all right? What's funny is this. There are two hidden medical phenomenons that happen in Jesus' life. Okay, if you were here on Easter, I actually broke one down in which there is actually a medical condition in which you are under such duress that you sweat blood, okay? That is a medical condition. You know, it's interesting also, so there's two things that happened in Jesus' crucifixion that were medical phenomenons. That's the first. The second one is this, is John's gospel describes when Jesus was killed that they shoved a spear into his side and water and blood come out the side of Jesus. Now, this is not described in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only described in John, which many believe is very interesting and he's trying to prove a point. The point being is this, and I stumbled upon this by a guy, um, uh, a theologian that I really respect. His name is Bruce Milne, a pastor and and theologian that I I study his commentaries a lot. And in it, he talks about, and I'm actually going to read his exact words. It says this, medical opinion connects an interesting phenomenon between water and blood in Jesus' death. A common view is that the spear of a Roman soldier actually pierced Jesus' heart, which is probable as the cross historically was not constructed high off of the ground. This would explain that as the spear shoved into Jesus' side, blood shoots out as his heart is pierced. 
However, when John says water came out as well, this is a harder to explain fact. In cases of heart failure from traumatic induced stress shock response, water will gather around the the pericardial sac. So when the spear is stabbed into the heart, literally because the heart is failing under the weight that it is encountering, water is building up around it. So when that spear pierces that heart, water and blood come out. What's interesting about this medical condition is that if it's true, it would mean that Jesus did not die of the physical effects of beating and torture, but rather the shock and weight of all that was happening mentally that literally triggered a heart failure, a weight so heavy, his heart literally shut down. Let that sink in for a second. Water and blood shooting out because the heart is failing under the weight it is carrying. See, a lot of us, we, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, you know. But could you imagine a weight that is so heavy that your heart shuts down? Pulling water around it to hold it intact as it is literally disintegrating under the stress of shock it is going through. As the spear goes into the side of the body, it then shoots out the the remaining fluids that are there just to try to keep it alive. See, the water and the blood testify. You know what's even more interesting is that in Old Testament prophecy, you know what the water actually is referenced to? A new water that would flow? The Holy Spirit. Many believe that the symbolism of Jesus' life being shed as blood shoots out to pay for a new covenant, water shoots out to prove a new covenant. This new covenant in which God would be with man no longer confined to physical body. He would be present, or should I say omnipresent, at all times, everywhere. See, this is why I'm breaking this down is because what's sad to me today is that we can profess and believe in the blood, right? We can, we can practice the waters of baptism. But what Jesus purchased was not just a decree of blood and a baptism of sin, but a life in the spirit. And I want to say this to you today because I believe for a lot of us, this is really what the commentaries break down is, is in the overcoming life-changed walk with God. First, there is a profession of faith. Second, there is an immersion. And, and really, when you study, and I, I don't have time to go into this this morning, but when you truly study Old Testament and New Testament um, differentials, you'll see that water baptism was not present In the Old Testament. It wasn't present. When John started doing this, this phenomenon was unseen. Which is why a lot of the crowds started to gather because they'd never heard of repentance outside of the temple and submersion with somebody actually submerging you. They'd never seen this before. You know what's even more fascinating is in the early church it said that when you professed faith in God, you would then submit to a three-year process of sitting underneath an apostle, being a part of community before you earned the right to be baptized. Think about that. 
Yes, I believe in the blood. Okay, well, sit under the teaching so that when you are baptized, you are baptized into something even greater than you could have ever possessed and that you fully understand what you're doing. But once again, what does it start with? Yes, the blood, the baptism, but then the spirit. And that's what I want to start with today, right? And I'm going to... I'm going to break this down, but essentially I want to talk about today how to become the proof that you're looking for. You know what's sad to me is that a lot of people that I talk to about faith ask for proof. And immediately for me, I can just go into my testimony immediately of all the things God has done in my life, all the crazy stuff that I've seen, right? And typically, right, you overcome by the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony. But what if, what if actually the proof you were looking for is the proof you actually could pursue and become and then transmit to others who are searching? See, I think a lot of the times what happens is, is we want to breathe the proof instantaneously instead of building in rhythms, routines, and a lifestyle of pursuing Jesus that then over a period of time you look back and you start to see the proof that you actually were demanding in the past. And what I want to talk about today is how do we become the proof that you're looking for? And it's tough for me to even write about, I'll be honest, because skepticism in the church is at an all-time high. The older I get, the more I have realized the need for godly examples that are unbiased, unpolitical, unfazed by fearful culture. Calm and steady, sustainable and not burnt out or deconstructed. This new way of living is the proof that people are looking for. And it's rare to find. So today, what I want to talk about, how to become the proof you're looking for. Number one, there is absolutely no way around it. A life in Jesus must have an encounter rooted in revelation of blood that was shed for your sins. Water baptism of repentance and life led of the Holy Spirit and growing in your consciousness of its leading. We can only claim ignorance, and I say ignorance because that's really lack of knowledge or information. We can only claim ignorance of these matters so long before it slips into rebellion that leads to lifeless religiosity. Three components profession of sin. Believing that the blood was shed for me. Second, baptism in which there is an outward sign of what is happening inwardly. In which we are saying, God, wash me clean and bring me into a new life. But then the third thing. And in all honesty, the weirdest one. A life in the Spirit. The three things that testify of the Son in 1 John are, number one, seems easy enough. I can, I can receive the blood that was shed. Number two, I can be baptized and ultimately show a posture in which my life has changed. But number three, can I live a life following the Holy Spirit? You know, devil's advocate, once again, I want to say this to you. I believe that the enemy's attack on just the term Holy Spirit and the way it has been used in our culture, making it weird and weaponized, has absolutely worked in the regards to dull the importance of it in your life today. I want to encourage you, a life in the Spirit and Word will produce a life in you that is proof in a world that thinks there's nothing out there. 
What's sad to me is that the Holy Spirit has absolutely been an instrument of manipulation and weaponization of personal agendas. But I will say that, that that was the enemy's tactic all along. If he could strip the spirit of its power, then why would anybody want to plug into it? But what if, for some reason, as the church has stood decade after decade, millennia after millennia, century after century, what if, as people have tried to strip the Holy Spirit and he just comes back stronger and strip the Holy Spirit of power and he just is still here? We're still talking about it. Why? Because the spirit can't be defeated. That's literally the victorious expression of Christ on the cross for you. Is his presence that now permeates your being. And what is sad to me today is the practice of getting quiet and allowing the spirit to speak to you. The practice of being rooted in the word in which we start to know the nudgings and leadings of a lifestyle of rootedness. Could you imagine the proof that would be? The proof of being able to listen to the Spirit as somebody stands in front of you and knowing what they're going through and praying over them. The rootedness of the Spirit that when you are going through trial and tribulation, you feel a power and a strength in you that you've never experienced, but you can only summarize by the fact that you're near. I want to say this to you today, is here at our church, we believe in the Holy Spirit and the practical application of a life rooted in Him. This fall, we'll be creating more what we're kind of going to call renewal rooms, rooted in listening, prayer, repentance, and worship. Three times a week, we'll be holding these spaces for our congregation to come and be present, to be still, and to know. And what I want to say to you today is if that you have a, a negative experience with the Holy Spirit, I want to repent on behalf of people who have done wrong to you in that. But I also don't want you to write off a power that God wants you to possess. The second thing is this, love and obedience go together. They do not fight against each other. The Creator's instructions on living are perfectly and divinely designed to meet His creation's needs. What you love, you obey, follow, and protect. If you love and yet do not know the ways of obedience to that love, you must immerse yourself in a lifestyle of abiding in His Word and Spirit to learn how love is lived. What's sad today, today, is that we can profess, I love God, but we don't know how lived out love of God is. What is lived out love of following God? And you can sit on that the rest of the day because all of us can give different answers and opinions on that. But what is lived out love with God look like? And I would even equate it to this. I think a lot of us, right, we have this idea that love is just love, but there's no obedience attached. Because love is just love. There's no obedience. There's no consideration. There's no um, framework for it. It's just, it's love. All us married couples can attest to the fact that, well, it's, it's a little bit more different. There's a different consideration. And I'll, I'll even take away the married couples. Think about in your life the people you love most. The consideration that is they have, the communication that is necessary to keep that healthy, 
the standard in which you live, in which you don't tarnish or disrespect the love that you profess to each other. Think about the conditions of what that love flourishes in. Do those conditions apply to your love for God? Because in this day and age, it is so easy to profess love in God, but have no conditions that assimilate that fact. What it would look like to be a people who live out a love for him. There might be some proof in that pudding. You know, I'll never forget my senior year in high school. Uh, naturally, before conspiracy theories were a thing, um, which now they are everything. Um, some of you guys are like, what does that mean? Don't worry, you know exactly what I'm saying. Um, I remember we were sitting in class my senior year, and I had senioritis since seventh grade. And... Uh, <laughs> And I remember my friend looks at me and he goes, you know, your, your colleges don't even take into account the last semester of high school that most people are accepted by then and unless you just bomb everything. And I remember thinking to myself, that's actually really smart. Like colleges don't even take into account the fact that your last semester, if you're terrible, it's like, well, you already made it. Because they're not even really looking at your transcripts at that point. Most of the time they're assessing and your GPA is weighted. So that last semester, maybe you'll drop your GPA a little. And my friend's really smart. And I'm looking, I'm like, dang, I don't got to try for the next four months. So what happens? I'm in physics and algebra 3, 4 at that time. And what do you think happened? I started bombing quizzes, tests, everything. No home. I am there, but I am not there. My dad looks at, I get home one day and my dad looks at me and he says, hey, I've noticed your grades are slipping. And I said, they have been. And he looks at me and he goes, really? And I said, yeah, they have been. I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of done. And he looks at me and I said, he said, done. I said, yeah, I, my friend told me. It's like literally listening to my logic now. I just want to slap myself in the face. It's like my friend in high school told me I could quit. My dad looks at me and he gets this far from my face. I'll never forget it. And he said, that's fine. Can I have your car keys? I said, that's, here you go. Can I have your cell phone? I said, here you go. I said, you're going to, in four months when this is all over, I'll just have them back. Shouldn't have said that. And my dad looked at me. He said, that's fine. Go bring your mattress out. Go bring your dresser out. Anything I've ever bought you. Because there are conditions to living in this home. I tell you that story because how many of us, right, we think that there is an unconditional love that doesn't dictate conditions. So we can live however we want because God loves. I love that John keeps reiterating the fact that it's not a burden, but we still live under command. We still follow the laws. It's not a burden, and we don't do it like them with all the crazy dietary restrictions and all the stuff. But I'm going to tell you this. We have an unconditional love that has a conditional relationship that predicts what the proximity is. And I want to say to us today that the reason people are asking for proof is because love hasn't obeyed the commands of God on the subject of it. And they haven't to the point that it reveals itself as a supreme love to the world. We've taken God's unconditional and we've tried to apply it to our conditional world. And that's why it doesn't have power anymore. I want to encourage you today. 
You can experience God's unconditional love. But build a life of framework in which the conditions are ripe for health, transformation, and overcoming. The last point I have for you today is this. It's another long one. They're leaving them on there for a reason. The things that no one knows are the places his overcoming power wants to touch first. I'm going to get direct here for a second. How you grow in faith is when it transforms what was once pain into a platform for his glory to be shown. If you want to be the proof to the world and to yourself, you must allow the darkest secrets and doubts and the hidden places of your life to be exposed to the blood, the water, and the spirit and not carry the burden anymore. 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You know, one of the most painful things in closing, this is my final story, one of the biggest regrets of my life was how I actually treated my younger brother growing up. And it wasn't all of my life, really, I kind of snapped out of it um, after high school. But I'll never forget that I, I grew up and I treated my brother bad to the point that, you know, I, I would just say things to him and hit him and just didn't love him. And I think the Lord has used that um, in my life to where I see other kids do that. I can't tell you how many kids I'm like, listen, don't treat your family like that because at some point in your life, they may be the only ones you have. And I'll never forget because that is wedding. At his wedding, I got up as his best man and I repented of how I treated my brother. And it's funny because it's one of those things that I'm not proud of, but I know that God used. But one of the things my brother used to do, and I used to make fun of him all the time about it, when he would sit in the driveway with a magnifying glass and he would burn ants with the sun. (laughs) Which for some of us were like, okay, you can make fun of him. But he would burn ants in the sun. And man, my brother, he could, he could get this magnifying glass to be burning so hot that, I mean, there'd be smoke coming off the ground. And I'll never forget this. I used to make fun of him so much. But this is the perfect image of what God can do for you. The focused light of the Word and the Spirit on things that were a nuisance, never-ending battle, or constant mental occurrence that can be burned up instantly by the focus of power. What is something right now that you're praying that God would remove, praying that God would destroy, but he's in turn looking at you and saying, if you actually would focus my spirit and my word on it, it'll burn up right in front of you. And I want to say this to you today, as sad as it is, as many of us are praying for God to take things away that really God is saying, will you trust that as you pursue me, we'll take them away together. The power of God is not God's power and just us receiving it. It's us growing to a place and an awareness where we realize that God's power works through hands that believe that the power can be here just as much as it's there. And in closing today, I want to encourage you that there are things we're dealing with, things that we're going through, things that we're praying for God to do on behalf of us. 
that I believe God is challenging you that if you would take the blood, if you would take the water, if you would take the spirit, if you would build in the rhythms and the routines and the disciplines that would allow these habits and behaviors to come into our lives, what you might find is that he can take care of the struggles you're facing. Let's stand to our feet. In closing, a practice we have here is I just read a prayer that synopsis the message over every person here. So as a, just the spirit of peace is in the room and just as we're quiet, I pray that you would, this prayer would receive as we close with one more song. God, would you help it to matter? Help it to matter how we live in this world. That the burden of proof found in us serving Christ would be surrendered life. That the light that others seek would be found in the abiding lifestyle in which we live. God, we reposition the importance of the blood, the water, and the spirit in our personhood today. No longer focused on what we lack or how we have failed. Give us new lenses to look through. Ones that help us to see a new way forward. Oh God, help us to strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. To have the courage to say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear, your God will come. That he will come to save you and that the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf unstopped. God, today we repent if in any way we have looked at your commands as a burden. Or a life in you as too much to bear. Oh God, remind us that the yoke is easy. The burden is light. And you are gentle and lowly of heart. And that in you is true rest for our souls.